Would you please now open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. We're in chapter 1 today and we will read verses 1 through 9. This is not going to be an exposition of the book of Galatians, although I would love to do it. That's not the point. What we're aiming for in this summer series is what I'm calling a gospel reset. Now you know that every election cycle when we get a new administration there's always a cry for and a strategy to accomplish a reset with some of what are considered our competitors or enemies whichever point of view you take usually Russia, China and North Korea and Iran. Um, Whether or not those are successful I'll leave you to your own opinion on that But my goal in this series of sermons over the summer is to help us begin again, to go back to the first things. Jesus' complaint against the church of Ephesus was that they had accomplished, he commended them for accomplishing great work and toil. But he also criticized them for leaving their first love And he told them to repent and do the first things. And the core and foundation of life and the heartbeat of life for all believers is the gospel because the gospel is the message about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're always in danger of losing it, not losing our salvation, but losing the power of the gospel to energize and vitalize us, and eventually it becomes redundant to us. And it becomes something that we know the words very well, but we don't hear the music at all. Uh, That's as one speaking from experience. So as we get into this message, I hope you'll understand a little more about what this introduction means. But hear now the word of the Lord, beginning in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men or through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who were with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father, And the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now at this point, this is an editorial comment, I'm not reading scripture. At this point, Paul would usually in his letters launch into either a prayer or a blessing on the particular church or he would commend them about certain things that are going on. But in this particular letter, it is so abrupt, it's, it's uh, noteworthy. Let's pick up in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, 
Let him be accursed. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that you would speak to us very clearly. That you would, uh, by your spirit, get past the obstacles that we all bring to the worship service. Perhaps our minds are a million miles away, or perhaps we're struggling with certain issues in our family, or perhaps we're wondering uh, how we're going to provide for our family because we don't have a job, or perhaps we uh, didn't get enough sleep last night, or we're um, kind of dull and kind of dead at the present to the things of God. Quicken us by your Spirit. Cause us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And so today, we do want to look carefully at this idea of losing the gospel. That is, losing the power of the gospel's work upon our hearts. And Paul addresses this with the church in Galatia. The heartbeat of the Apostle Paul could be summarized this way. It was the gospel of grace. After going through Acts, we have seen that this was his lifeblood. This was his energy. Uh, this was what um, stoked him, what, what pumped him up, which, which vitalized him, which energized him, was the message of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel is not just entry-level material. It is not a 101 course. It is a 101, 201, 301, 401, ad infinitum course. We always need the gospel to be central to our spiritual lives as believers. Not just as the way to become a Christian, but the way to continue. Paul said in Galatians, As we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so go on walking in Him. We continue as we began. But in our lives of living for Christ, in our lives of sanctification, we often find ourselves needing to return back to our justification to get our bearings, to understand what's really going on with us. Because if your sanctification, growth in grace, growth in becoming like Jesus Christ, being delivered more and more from the power of sin, and uh, shaped more and more into the image of Christ as anything like mine, you can get very discouraged. And so you need to go back and look and see not so much what you need to do next, but who you are in Christ and what are the resources you have in Him. Sometimes I think His picture of sanctification is different than mine and most of us. But Paul sensed that the gospel in Galatia had been domesticated, tamed, perverted, deluded, distorted, and his passions were aroused. If you look at his opening words, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who uh, called you into the grace of Christ. Um, one of the things that Martin Luther often said that I think is very helpful about understanding the gospel is this. He said we need to beat it into our heads continually. Why? Because in us still remains what the Bible calls the flesh. And the flesh 
is the gravitational pull of our old man away from the realities of the kingdom of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the flesh lusts in us. It creates inordinate desires. But those desires are not just for lustful, sinful items, but our flesh is very, very religious. Our flesh is a con man. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And our unredeemed nature, our flesh, which we will have with us until we die, has a pull within us away from the reality of the person and work of Christ. And it's a very strong pull to where Luther was led to say you need to beat the gospel into your heads continually. Because you will lose its transforming power and revert to something sub-Christian uh, quite quickly. And so, he tells us that he's surprised, he's astonished, shocked. He's anxious about it, he's worried about it. Because they are in enormous danger in Galatia, they are in confusion. But Paul also seems in this letter to be angry. His language is very strong. And he's directly angry at the ones who were misleading the converts of the church. He refers to them as some people who are trying to twist or pervert or distort the gospel. And he calls down condemnation upon them. More indirectly, he's also angry with the Galatians themselves, warning them that they are quickly deserting the God who called them. A very serious charge. They are personally turning their backs on God. So whatever it was that was happening in Galatia, it was a threat to the power of the gospel to accomplish in people's hearts what God designed for it to accomplish in people's hearts. Now, we do know because of studying the entire letter previously, we do know that this, uh, what generated the strong outburst from Paul was a group of teachers who came in after Paul left Galatia who were teaching Gentile converts that they were obliged to keep the Jewish cultural customs of the Mosaic Law. They were responsible in order to reach full status as Christians to obey the dietary laws, to be circumcised, and the rest of the ceremonial law. Then they would truly be pleasing to God. They were second rate as they were. They did not possess full status simply as people who believed the message. But rather, they needed to add something to the gospel. And any time anybody preaches, I don't care who they are, what denomination, what pulpit they stand in, what Bible they're reading out of, anybody that preaches a Christ plus gospel is descending rapidly into heresy that will ultimately destroy a person's heart. And so that's what's going on here. And Paul, who had such close relationship with this church, uh, he's saying essentially to them, these people are repudiating everything I've preached to you, everything I've said to you. And so Paul, in this letter, offers an outline of the gospel in the earlier verses. No outline can be complete, but he does give them something. He says, first we learn that we are helpless and hopeless and lost. 
That is what the word rescue implies in verse 4. Other founders of religions came primarily to teach people information that they needed to believe, but not to rescue. Jesus, of course, was a great teacher, but when Paul gives us the nutshell version of Jesus' ministry, he makes no mention of his teaching at all. But what he does talk about is his rescue. You don't rescue people unless they are lost or they are perishing. They're in a condition of lostness. They're in a condition of hopelessness and helplessness. They are perishing and unable to recover themselves. So the word rescue teaches what theologians often call spiritual inability, a powerlessness to move toward God. Second, we learn in the early verses of Galatians 1 what was done to rescue us. What Jesus did, Jesus made a sacrifice, verse 4a. He gave himself, which was a substitutionary work. The word for means on the behalf of or in the place of. And the principle of substitution will be brought out more fully in the letter to the Galatians. But he gave himself for our sins. Christ's death was not just a general sacrifice, but a substitutionary sacrifice. This means he didn't merely buy us some sort of second chance, some sort of halfway house between heaven and earth, but he did all that we needed to do. It was Jesus' death, and it really paid for our sins on our behalf. Then we can never fall back into condemnation. When the law comes to you and accuses you in your head and condemns you, you need to talk back to the law and say, My Savior received on my behalf the condemnation I deserve so that I now get the approval and welcome Jesus deserved by his life of obedience and perfection. So in other words, we know Jesus did all we should have done in our place so that when he becomes our Savior, we are absolutely free from the penalty of condemnation. But the Father accepted the work of the Son, we know, because he raised him from the dead in verse 1. And he gave us both grace and peace in verse 3, that Christ won and achieved for us. Third, we learn that God did this, and it was all done out of grace, not because of anything we have done, not because of anything we have achieved, not because of any performance we have made, but according to the will of God and our Father. We are called by the grace of Christ. We didn't deserve or ask for rescue, but Jesus came according to the will of the Father. There's no indication of any other motivation or cause of Christ's mission to come and rescue us but the will of God. Therefore, salvation is sheer unmerited grace. That is why the only one who gets glory forever for our salvation is God alone. The only, that J.I. Packer once said, the only thing you ever contribute to your salvation is your sins. That's all we've got to give. And even our righteousnesses are nothing but filthy rags before the holiness of God who looks not only at the outward act but also of the inward heart and motive. Now, according to verses 6 and 7, any change to the gospel makes it null and void. 
We are told that they were called by the grace of Christ. That means God called us. We didn't call him. And God accepted us right away despite of our lack of merit. That is the order of the gospel. And this needs to be beaten into our heads. God accepts us and then we follow. Uh, but other religious systems have it the other way around. We must give God something and then he accepts us. The people who suggested the Galatians simply added the Mosaic ceremonial law to Christ were not simply suggesting a revision to the gospel, but rather a complete reversal. In verse 7, we are told that the teaching perverts or literally reverses the gospel. This is illuminating. If you add anything to Christ, anything, the grace of Christ plus something else as a requirement for acceptance with God, you completely reverse the order of the gospel and you make it null and void. That is why in verse 6 Paul says that these false teachers are producing a different gospel, which really is no gospel at all. Why? Because it's not good news. Anything that depends upon what you and I do in order for us to find acceptance and to find the love of God welcoming us is bad news. It's the worst news you can hear. What makes the gospel good news is because of the one who accomplished it on our behalf. Paul says this gospel is not another gospel. Uh, Luther in his preface to the Galatians says, For there is no middle ground between Christ's righteousness and works righteousness. There is no alternative to the Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. Now when people talk to me all the time and they tell me, well, this group believes you have to do this in order to be saved, and this particular region teaches this, and this religion teaches you you need to be this in order to be saved. I basically categorize it under two headings. One is works righteousness. One is righteousness accomplished by Christ, accredited, imputed, given to us as much as if we did it ourselves. And it's perfect. And it calls for nothing from us but receiving it, accepting it, and living and basking in the glory of it. It is the best good news any person could ever hear. But how do people, now we're getting to the point of what this whole sermon is about. Most of you probably knew, although I never assume people understand the gospel. I never assume that. I never assume that I completely understand the gospel. But how do people add to the gospel today in ways that diminish its power? There are many examples, and we could spend a long time talking about it, but Paul condemns any teaching that is not based on the fact we are too sinful to contribute our salvation to our salvation. We need a complete rescue. Therefore, we are saved by belief in Jesus' work, the grace of Christ, plus nothing else. If you add anything to Christ, then Christ means nothing to you. He means nothing to you. Whatever you add means everything to you. And you will never have assurance. You will never be secure because you can never reach the word enough. Ever. The only one who did enough is Jesus and he did it on your behalf. Now, 
Here are some examples that deny one of these two basic truths. We're too sinful to contribute to our salvation. We need a rescue. We are saved merely by belief in Jesus' work, the grace of Christ, plus nothing else. In some churches, and I've been in them, and probably pastored some of them, <laughs> it is implicitly or explicitly taught that you are saved through your surrender to Christ plus right beliefs and behavior. This is a fairly typical, typical mistake in what we might call evangelical churches, which is really an oxymoron because the word evangelical means what? Gospel. Good news. But in evangelical churches, people are challenged to give your life to Jesus or to ask him into your heart. I see TV commercials doing this. Now, it sounds really biblical. It really does. But it can still reject the grace-first principle fairly easily. Most people think that it means that we're saved by a strong belief and trust in and love for God along with a life committed to Him. Therefore, they feel they must begin generating a high degree of spiritual sorrow, hunger, and love in order to get Christ's presence. Then they must somehow maintain this if they're going to stay saved. In other words, many conservative churches functionally teach the idea that we are saved because of the level of our faith. But the gospel says we are saved through our faith. The first approach really makes our performance the Savior, and the second makes Christ's performance the Savior. It's not the level of your faith. It is the object of your faith. In other churches, it's taught that it doesn't really matter what you believe. Doctrine is not important. What's important is the kind of life you live. As long as you're attempting to be a loving and good person, everything's hunky-dory. This is a typical mistake of churches that are more in the vein of liberal theology. This view teaches that all good people, regardless of their religion or lack of one, will find God. This sounds extremely open-minded on the surface, but it rejects the grace-first principle in two ways. First, it teaches that good works are enough to get to God. If all good people can know God, then Jesus' death was not really necessary. All it takes is virtue. And we live in a culture now where virtue signaling <laughs> is not to be outdone by any other area in history. The trouble is, this means that bad people don't have any hope. Contradicting the gospel, which invites both good and bad to God's feast in Matthew 22. If you say that people are not saved by faith in Christ, but by being good, then you will only invite good people in. Second, it sets up tolerance, openness, and love as the ultimate virtues rather than a growing moral holiness and life. Um, it sounds flexible, but it's extremely moralistic in another sense. Uh, it indirectly encourages people to feel that if they're tolerant and open, that will please God. The greatest virtue is, is to be tolerant and open. 
Uh, the gospel, however, challenges people to see their radical sin without the sense of one's own evil. The knowledge of God's grace will mean nothing to you. It will not be transforming. It will not be something you hope for. If you think you're doing okay without Jesus and you don't really need him and you don't need somebody to die for your sins and shame and condemnation and take upon himself the guilt of your own life, and if you don't think you need somebody to live in your place a perfect life because that's all God will allow into heaven, well, why do you need Jesus? You don't need him at all. He's a nice person. He teaches good moral values, although today I don't think people would say that, would they? As Christendom has departed from our culture, and now we're more a pluralistic, secularist culture, people don't admire the morality of Jesus. They might admire the fact that he accomplished some miracles, but they don't really believe in miracles, so there's not much left to admire. But what do you need Jesus for if you can do it yourself? Why did he need to bankrupt, as it were, heaven, come himself to this gory place on earth, live in a human body, the Son of God, very God of God, very man of man, why leave heaven, come and rescue us if we can do it ourselves? We need grace. We need grace. We need somebody to come and save us because we can't save ourselves. And we construct daily little ways of attempting to save ourselves and save our face and save our reputation and save ourselves from seeing our desperate condition. There's a third way, I think, also, example, that we can find in churches that are extremely intolerant of small differences in dress or customs. Most of us immediately will think of these kind of churches when we read about the false teachers of Galatia. They wanted to impose many old rules and regulations having to do with dress, diet, ritual, religious communities who control their members very tightly and direct them into the right way to eat, dress, date, schedule their time, and so on. One may insist on a detailed observance of many complicated rituals. So, modern-day examples of Galatian Harry would be highly authoritarian churches, highly ritualized churches, highly legalistic churches that impose upon the community standards that are extra-biblical whatever they may be. For example, I was talking to someone before Sunday school today and he told me he went to a church that has Presbyterian in its name. I won't add the other parts because it might upset a couple of people. But it has Presbyterian in its name. And there was a man, he said, there that was absolutely brilliant. He was sound theologically. He, he was just right on page. He was reformed. He was the hope and dream of every session to see this man become an elder. But they wouldn't make him an elder. You want to know why? Because he wouldn't wear a tie to church. Think about that for a minute. Legislating where God has left us free. Now, I'm not telling that story because I don't have on a tie today. <laughs> I only quit wearing a tie after too many of you came to me over and over and said, you sweat so much, why do you wear a tie? <laughs> You're living in Las Vegas. This is one place in the world where you could go without a tie. It's here. It's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. 
But a, a close cousin of the third kind of ministry would be missionaries who plant churches. But I think that there's even a more insidious kind of disorder or pathology within the church that is very much like the Judaizing heresy, Judaizers named after the Jewish uh, teachers who taught the Galatians they needed to add these things in order to become full um, members. But there's something called evangelical pragmatism. And it's this. Is Judaizing a cultural historical problem that has disappeared? No. Sad to say, it's still alive and well in the church and even in my own heart today, though I try to fight it. What is the Judaizing heresy Paul addressed in Galatia and Philippi? It is the subtle, seductive teaching that can suck you in hook, line, and sinker before you know it. Believing the gospel is like being turned right side up while the rest of mankind is standing on its head and the view is radically different. In Galatians, Paul, we've already said, uh, addressing the Jewish Christian agitators who adopted a rigorous attitude toward Gentile converts and sought to impose upon them circumcision and observance of the law as regards as conditions for salvation or what amounts to the same thing for full Christian status. Put simply, Judaizing heresy is a Christ plus gospel. Grace is not enough. It can't be expected and trusted to do the job. So law must come in like the Lone Ranger and save the day. The Judaizers say Christ plus the law equals full status. Paul says Christ alone equals full, equals full status. So what does that heresy look like today in Christendom? You'll hear it espoused like this. Listen very carefully. Christianity is the best system available for making my life work for me. The Bible is God's manual for success in all dimensions of life. If you want a better life, you want a better marriage, a career, a family, a business, status, then Christ will serve and glorify you by exalting you and giving you your hopes and dreams. Didn't Jesus say, I have come, that you might have life and have it abundantly? What this amounts to is we need to come to church to learn how to use Jesus to get a better life than the one we have now. It's your best life now theology. And it plays out like this. I enter the Christian life receiving Christ. I live the Christian life by getting it right. If I fulfill the conditions, getting it right, that is, I find myself re-entering the covenant of works. Or, if you like it, the Mosaic covenant, which was a national covenant of works, in my opinion. But a covenant of works simply is this. There are obligations God asks me to accomplish. If I do them, then I fully expect Him to bless me. If I don't do them, then I hate to admit He won't bless me. He will curse me. Now, a lot of Christians who have received Christ, who are quasi-justified by faith as in their understanding, go back to this as a way to live life. It's a reinstatement. If I obey, God will bless me. I am saved by coming as I am, but I live by doing what I should. If I get it reasonably right, God is obligated to give me this particular kind of life. 
If I obey, life will work for me. That's the gospel of evangelical pragmatism. Truth is what works. But it's not the gospel. The gospel is not good news because it works for me. Rather, the gospel is good news because it is true. Turning my relationship with God into a negotiated quid pro quo arrangement is the heart and soul of the contemporary Judaizing theology. However, in Galatians 4, Paul calls this returning to the weak and beggarly elements of law. They are weak because they have no power to save. They are beggarly because they are bankrupt. This heresy is the result of self-deception at the motivational level of the heart. We end up wanting the gift more than the giver, the blessing more than the blesser. We use Jesus to get a better life. We are not gospel-driven or gospel-centered, but rather blessing-centered and success-starved. We are no different than the pagan world. Now, that may sound harsh to you. Modern Judaizers always baptize whatever their projects are. They always baptize it by saying, Uh, I'm trusting God, I'm claiming His promises, I'm applying biblical principles, I'm meeting conditions, I'm fulfilling the terms of being godly. All of these good things that become idolatrous to us if our motives are perverse. Here's what it looks like in today's church, and hear me carefully, because you need to be clear on what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. In today's church, it sounds like this. If you want a good marriage... Apply these biblical principles. If you want a successful family and godly children, follow these particular steps. If you want to have a significant ministry, be this kind of leader. If you want spiritual maturity, practice these disciplines. If you want wealth, apply biblical principles regarding money. If you want to be successful and have a thriving business, dedicate it to Jesus. Have morning devotions for your employees. Repeat the mantra, Christ first, family second, career life last. Life will work for you if you get it right. And if it's successful, the credit is yours because you got it right. Of course, we will tack on to God be the glory. Follow the rules, fulfill the conditions, persuade him to look on your efforts with favor, and you can have whatever you want. But when doing it right becomes a strategy to get what I want, the energy driving me is not the gospel or grace. It's pride and it's self. Now, One of the great motivations in the Christian life is gratitude or thankfulness. I'm going to tell you where people, how people get to the covenant of works mindset. And the last point's not that long, so don't sweat it. We're already on the last point. Thankfulness points us away from what we have achieved or failed to achieve and makes us focus instead on God's love, which alone can warm our cold hearts and set them on fire with delight in God and in serving and obeying Him. If we look only at our own efforts, we soon become overwhelmed by our failure and seek beneath waves of discouragement. If we look at any minor successes or any experiences that we may have had, we easily become proud. And again, there's a block in the way of loving God. As only the love of Christ can constrain us to change our sinful attitudes and habits, it is of fundamental importance that we understand what Christ has done for us and what salvation has cost him. 
Just as a person saved from drowning is thankful, so should we be when we understand our deliverance by Christ. That is why Paul in Colossians, dealing with spiritual growth, spells out so carefully who Christ is and what his work has accomplished. To the extent that we forget that our status before God is due to what Christ has done for us, we will try to make our own relationship with God depend on winning His approval. Thinking unless we fulfill certain obligations, God will not love us, we begin to focus on what we have or have not done. We make an anxious search for internal evidences of new life, but doubts arise as to whether God really loves us. Then as we realize we cannot possibly meet such strict demands and standards, resentment builds up against God for making such strict demands. So our hearts gradually harden again against Him, and obedience becomes more onerous and difficult. Joy and wonder and praise dry up. Instead, frustration and a sense of failure make us feel empty and sterile. You know why a lot of people end up in this camp? Because they try evangelical pragmatism and it doesn't work for you. You did all the right things. You think you got it right. By the way, we never get it right, okay? We will never get it right. That's why we need Jesus. We'll never get it right. You can't get it right. Give it up. You can't get it right. But we have that mindset, sort of a covenant of works mindset, not a gracious covenant, but a works covenant, that if I do the right things, if I, if I send my kids to the right school, if I use the right homeschooling curriculum, if I do... Um, uh, teach them how to pray, if I have family devotions, if I do all the things that the Bible says a Christian parent should do, then my child will turn out to be wonderful. Not necessarily. And when they don't, and when they don't, what are you going to do? You become cynical like me? <laughs> I hope you're not hearing cynicism. I hope what you're hearing from me is you're believing the wrong gospel. Jesus doesn't exist to give you your best life now. Jesus came to rescue you from the hell we live in. I don't know any family, speaking also of my own, who doesn't have some dysfunctionality about it. And I know that when Christians, you don't know you're mad at God, but you really are mad at God because it didn't work. You fell for it. You tried it. You got conned. And you're so angry you could spit. Why didn't God live up to his end of the deal? Why didn't God come through for me? I did everything everybody told me to do to be a good Christian, and now my life just completely, as the young people say, sucks. And when is it going to stop? When you get to heaven. That's when it'll stop. But you see, you lose the gospel that way. Your heart becomes crusty. It becomes hardened. When we get into that state, what do we do? The Christian life shouldn't be sterile and joyless. Should we seek some sort of higher spiritual experience? This is where all the gospel substitutes come in like the cavalry to save you. If you're not rooted in the real gospel of Christ 
and Christ alone and trusting in him, then the false gospels will ride in like the cavalry to save yourself. I am a Christian book reader. I read lots of books. I read all the time. And if you go in Christian bookstores, I used to call Christian bookstores pornography for preachers because you, you go in here and you read about this church had this amazing experience because they started doing that. The church growth section is the pornography section for ministers. If you don't know what that means, ask God later. He'll tell you. But you go in there and, and, and you're looking and you see that this guy started doing this and this and it's just great. Everything's wonderful. Church is growing. People are coming to Christ. All that stuff. And you're a sucker for it. And I'm a sucker for it because I have moved away from the gospel. Ingratitude eats away at one's whole life by producing spiritual drought and bitterness. One time I heard a guy, uh, one of my professors at seminary, preach a message on our need to forgive God. <laughs> and after I listened to the sermon, it was exactly what I'm telling you today. We think God owes us a good life if we're believers, as we define good. But what he owes us is nothing. And you've got to start from that viewpoint or you're going to have a hard, hard Christian life. You're going to have a sad Christian life. So, you know how I know that I'm departing from the gospel? It's, I, I become very critical. Become very critical and judgmental of other people. Just ruthless in that. Why? Because my heart is cold. It's hard. But centering on Christ can alone motivate us to love and obedience. Centering on ourselves produces bitterness or complacency. That is why Paul continually presses us to look at Christ. Don't look in. Don't look around you. Look at him. Focus upon him and recognize his transforming power. Why do we hold on? with such a death grip to our Judaizing ways. It gives the illusion that I'm in control. I can fix it. If I can just do everything right, I can fix it. There's no linear cause and effect between getting it right and blessing. We never ever in this life get it right. So all the blessing we experience comes via the grace we have in union with Christ. When I am believing the gospel of the Judaizers, I'm proud and smug. When I'm successful and inwardly gloat, I'm a little bit better than those people. But when others fail around me, I look at them with contempt and disdain and inwardly reply, they didn't get it right. I did. I'm better. Now, how does this strike us in reform circles? Reform circles is very much an emphasis upon orthodox theology and I'm not against orthodox theology I am passionate about it but that passion for orthodox theology can become a smugness that we are right we draw a line here everybody on that side of the line who isn't in my camp they're wrong but over here I'm right Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 Come back to Christ. Turn to Him. Living for God's glory is not about me. 
It's not about being blessed in life. It's not obligating God to owe me and guarantee me a certain quality of life. It is wanting Him coming weal or woe. If it, it is sometimes enjoy, enjoying His presence, feeling it, and other times experiencing His hiddenness and the dark night of the soul. But when my heart is happy in the gospel, blessings or suffering don't ultimately matter Christ alone is enough. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for the book of Galatians and how it helps us see when we get dangerously close to losing the transforming, powerful, nurturing, flourishing effects of believing the gospel. And we pray that we would all begin again that we would all reset our lives looking at the gospel. It's so easy to get caught up in everything else in the first place. And forget this. We have such amnesia about it. We pray you would heal us and that you would bless us. And then, Lord, we pray as uh, we come to the time of offering in this church, we would give as people who are grateful for the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the choice of God the Father for us to be in union with Him and the application of the Holy Spirit bringing salvation to our hearts. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.